Yeah, thanks for being with us this morning. We are uh, finishing up a sermon series today called Design for Delight. Um, human beings were designed not just to be thinking and knowing creatures. And we were designed not just to do things, you know, to have a will that we can make choices and, and act on those. That's a part of what it is to be human, to think and to do. We were also designed to treasure things, to enjoy things, to find satisfaction and delight in things. Um, Recently, you may have heard about the NASA DART mission, right? This mission, uh, can, can we change the orbit of an asteroid by exploding something on it? Wouldn't you love to have that job? Um, here's a, a picture of mission control uh, during that uh, uh, NASA event, right? You just see the, the joy and the celebration and the sense of job well done and um, it fits perfectly with this description of science from uh, the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, an article on scientific objectivity. Science is in the business of producing empirical knowledge. Values should have no place in science. Scientists themselves should not be influenced by value judgments or community bias or personal interests. Yeah, that sounds like what these scientists are experiencing, doesn't it? <laughs> Right? There's no sense of community. There's no sense of, you know, we're biased for a successful mission. We, we, we are hoping our hard work pays off. Um, no, you listen to uh, Elena Adams, uh, who is in charge of this group of people, and she's describing the event. She's like, we have impact. <laughs> Woohoo! She's celebrating. Um, and, and she keeps using the word wonderful. If you listen to the recording of her voice as the event's unfolding live, wonderful, wonderful. Other people are hugging each other and giving high fives and, and saying things like amazing and awesome. And do you hear the tension between the head and the heart? Right? Our culture has a theory of knowledge that says... For knowledge to be genuine, it has to be dispassionate. It has to be disinterested. It has to be 100% empirical. And, and people who discover knowledge shouldn't let their personal interests or values enter into the equation. Real knowledge is divorced from real joy. Real knowledge is divorced from what we value and treasure and delight in. A real scientist would watch the mission succeed and go, yeah, okay. The results of the experiment were X. And if it failed, they would say in the same voice, yeah, okay. The results of the experiment were Y. It's an example of um, head and heart out of line in our culture. Because we, we have this theory of knowledge that doesn't align with what it's actually like to be human at all. Um, wholeness and integrity as a person means that all three, head, what we think, hands, what we do, heart, what we treasure, are all moving in the same direction and they're all aligned around one center that holds them all together. Psalm 86, 11 asks God for that. As we hear our scripture reading this morning, you'll hear the psalmist pray, 
Lord, unite my heart. Now, we tend to use the heart to talk only about that part of the human person that delights in things and treasures things. The Bible uses the heart to, to, to bring in the whole thing. Head, hands, mind, will, affections, desires, delight, all of it, whole package. Make me a whole person. Make all these things point in the same direction, God. Unite my heart. Today we want to use this psalm um, so that God can teach us what causes this fragmentation of the heart and teach us what it looks like to live a life where the heart is united and then teach us what, what makes it possible for a united heart to exist. Um, so our scripture reading, reading this morning is going to be um, a reminder that the psalms were originally written as songs to be sung in gathered worship. And so Megan's going to read for us, and then at the kind of seams in the psalm where there's a shift in the prayer, our choir's going to sing, or you're going to sing with them. And uh, you'll see the refrain that we're all going to sing together uh, on the screen behind me or in your worship guide. So this uh, way of reminding ourselves that um, as God speaks to us in His Word, the original context of the psalms uh, were sung. So we're going to do that together. Megan, will you come and get us started? Oh, we're going to start by singing. Sorry. Luke, will you come and get us started? Answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. 
All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. Insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, and they do not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame, because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. continue our prayers our choir makes their way down Lord we want to reach back to a song that we were singing earlier based on Psalm 130 we put our hope in you alone and we take courage in your power to save um, we enter this place today with hearts that are fragmented and we're tempted to put our hope in many things Lord, reunite our hearts so that we put our hope in you alone. May our courage not be found in the fact that uh, we have life figured out. May our courage not be found in the fact that uh, we, we think we belong to a church that has things figured out. Our courage is not found there. Our courage is found in you alone. Teach our souls to love your truth today, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. I know I don't treasure this, but I'm going to do it anyway. I know I don't really treasure money more than honesty, but I'm going to cut these corners anyway. 
because it's nice to have more money even if you have to lie to get it. I know I don't treasure my job more than I treasure my family, but it's kind of easy to be a workaholic. And if you ask me whether I love my family more than my work, I know how I would answer. It's obvious, but I'm going to keep doing the workaholic thing anyway because it's easy. I don't really treasure this moment of pleasure more than I treasure my marriage. But I'm going to go ahead and send this text anyway. When, when human beings think and act like that, it's an example of a, of a failure to align our heart with our hands. Right? We've, we've been using those metaphors of, of head, hands, and heart to talk about these different aspects of human life. And when we talked about the NASA dart example, that, that was an example of the, the heart and the head not being aligned. We've got this sort of theory of science that doesn't line up with the reality that scientists like to celebrate things. <laughs> um, and when we, when we find ourselves saying, I don't treasure this, but I'm going to do it anyway, that's an example of the, the heart and the hands not lining up. I'm going to do things, hands, that I know I shouldn't and don't really value that much heart. There's, there's lack of alignment. And all of us know what it's like when the head and the hands don't align. We call that hypocrisy, right? When somebody says they believe something, but they live a totally different way. None of these are good. When these kinds of fractures happen, we're not living like a whole person united. All of these things uh, pointed in the same direction. Bad things happen when our hearts are fragmented. And that's why we have to ask God the same thing the psalmist asks, right? Unite my heart. If my heart was naturally able to unite itself, I wouldn't need your help. I wouldn't need the help of the God of the universe. But um, our hearts are fragmented so many times, and we need that help. So we need to know what causes a fragmented heart. Let's start there. I'll summarize it this way. A crisis creates fear, and that fear drives the fragmentation. The moment of crisis makes us afraid that what we desire most deeply won't happen, that our deepest longings will go unmet. And when that fear grabs a hold of us, it, it tempts us to seek for a solution and that solution often involves fragmenting our heart. This psalm is about one of those moments of crisis. You hear it described as a day of trouble. Um, and, and you hear in the later verses of the psalm this, this notion that ruthless men seek my life. Um, insolent men have risen up against me. Um, they hate me, Right? Uh, that language is used in verse 17. May those who hate me be put to shame. There's a crisis happening. And the psalmist feels this pressure to fragment the heart. How do we know? Listen to what verse 8 says. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. So in the day of trouble, I call on you, for you answer me, verse 7 says. What's going on? In the day of trouble, I'm going to be tempted to call in the name of some other God. <laughs> in the day of trouble, I'm going to be tempted to, to fragment myself. 
and to, and to say, I know I believe this about my God, but I don't think he's actually going to care for me in this moment of need. So I'm going to go looking for another way. I'm going to divorce my, my head, what I say I believe, from my hands. I'm going to, I'm going to do something to fix this crisis and make sure that the things I long for the most will be taken care of because even though I say I believe God loves me and will take care of me in that way, I'm not really sure I can count on it in this moment, so I'm going to take matters into my own hands. Or um, I'm going to trust God to care for this area of my life, but I'm going to go find another God or another God or another God to meet those needs and take care of those things. Um, that fear begins to roil up these deep desires. And in the ancient world, the gods actually were sought because people believed they spoke to real desires and real needs, needs like security and safety. We're constantly living in the danger of starvation. And, and, and if we have a God who promises fertile crops every year, yeah. I want that. I don't want to die. I don't want to starve. I really want security. I really want safety. I really, I don't want to constantly be living on the edge. I, I want to be able to enjoy life. I want enough plenty and abundance for life to flourish. And if there are gods out there that tell me they can give me children to care for me in my old age, I want that. And if there are gods out there that tell me they can give us abundance and blessing and more life, I want that. And if there are gods out there that can keep us from being one of these kind of ridiculed, uh, rejected, tiny little backwater nations, yeah, I want that too. I, I, don't, I don't want to belong to a people that has no gods. I don't want to belong to a people that has only one god when all our neighbors have multiple gods. I want to be part of something big, something significant. I want to belong to something bigger than myself. And if there are gods out there that can do that, it's easy to live in a largely atheistic era of the world and look down on polytheists from the ancient world. But people who who had to reckon with the question of, are there other gods out there? Are there any other works that could meet these deep needs? They, they were wrestling with the same questions that you and I are every day. We fragment our hearts in different directions. I don't give part of my heart to Zeus and part of my heart to Hera and part of my heart to Apollo, Right? I give part of my heart to money and part of my heart to entertainment and part of my heart to fill in the blank, right? But, but this crisis that makes us fear that these deep needs won't be met, that's what leads us to fragment our hearts. And then God in his mercy and grace says, there's a different way. You, you can live with a united heart a whole self integrated, <laughs> all the parts of me pointing in the same direction um, and oriented around the same central coherent focus 
The psalm gets at that with this language of, there is none like you, O God. And the thought continues, right? Verse 10, you alone are God. And then the prayer in verse 11, unite my heart. Here's something for me that's different than this kind of fragmentation. I don't have to believe one thing and do a second thing and uh, treasure a third thing. I don't have to have my head pointed in one direction and my hands doing something else and my heart doing an entirely different thing. I don't need one set of intellectual beliefs and another set of ethical practices and a third set of deep desires that I kind of hide from everybody else and keep, keep private. And, and No, I can be a whole person. I can be united. Everything can point in the same direction. I don't have to be building up a collection of gods, each one meeting a different need. Um, first conversation I had with one of my seminary professors named Dan Doriani, very close friend of mine, um, in fact, he told me the last time we were visiting that he, he uses a paper I wrote as a seminary student uh, in his seminary classes. Uh, I didn't know that. The first time I talked to him about getting a Ph.D., he said, I've never thought of you as being that smart. <laughs> You're kind of a nice guy, but are you really that smart? Uh, I left his office. And considered things for a while. Uh, talked to Tricia, talked to some friends, prayed, and like I went back to his office and said, Dan, I, I well, I didn't call him Dan then, did I? Dr. Doriani, um, I'm still thinking maybe God's calling is for me to spend some more time studying the scriptures at a deeper level. Um, still think the next step after seminary is, is a PhD. And he said, okay, now we can talk. Because I knew that if me saying one discouraging thing was enough to keep you from doing it, then you're not really serious about it. Because intellectual interest will only take you so far. And the thing you need most to finish this path is desire and drive and diligence. And when you've stopped being intellectually interested in the question, pushing through and wanting to know more and, and finish the course, um, you hear what he was saying? Right? That um, academic interest alone, the head alone, won't satisfy our deepest longings. Our deep cravings for security and approval and belonging to something significant won't be met by relationships alone. You will never have a relationship with a human being that will fully satisfy you. That won't ever happen. You will never find an academic theory that will fully satisfy all that you are. Meaningful work is a good gift from God. Doing that work well and celebrating when the asteroid blows up. Like, wow, that's a good thing, but it will never fully satisfy 
Because somebody will come along and go, I could have done it better. I could have blown up a bigger asteroid. <laughs> yeah, anybody can blow up an asteroid when it's not actually headed toward the earth. I could have blown it up if it was heading toward the earth. Like something, none of those things can satisfy us. We need something big enough to hold us all together. The ability to use your mind to search for what is true, that is a good gift. Relationships with other human beings, those are good gifts. Meaningful work, good gift. But your heart is hungering to know the giver. And the gifts will never satisfy. The gifts are good. And your delight in them will only be enhanced by knowing the giver. But there's that deep drive in all of us saying what I really want to know is the one who is so good that it makes a united heart possible. Um, what keeps the planets in orbit around the sun? Right? We have this kind of coherent solar system where we don't have all of these planets orbiting around different things. They're all orbiting around the same thing. That's, that's what you and I are hungering for. Is like every part of my life is, is revolving around this one central focus. The sun is bright, brilliant, glorious light. Is that what keeps the planets orbiting around it? The sun is warm. <laughs> it's hot. It's so dang hot that from how many miles away it can warm up our whole planet. Is heat the thing that keeps the planets? I mean, you know where I'm going with this. We could say so much. The sun is, is, you know, beautiful. There's so many things that are true about the sun. But there's one primary thing that keeps the planets in orbit. The sun is massive. It distorts the fabric of space-time. I'm going to pretend like I know a little physics here for a minute. So much... It creates this gravity that keeps the planets in orbit. There's something like that about God. There's so many things that are true about Him. Magnificently, gloriously true. But He keeps telling us one thing. It's kindness. Being transformed by infinite kindness. An older phrase is loving kindness. The ESV uses the translation steadfast love. The Hebrew word is chesed. Loyal love, faithful love, covenant love, steadfast love, loving kindness. So many different ways to try to translate it and capture it all. But that's the gravitational force that pulls all the parts of us into alignment. You, you can have a whole heart. You can be a person with integrity. All the pieces of you pointed in the same direction. There is enough light in God to satisfy your mind. There is enough heat and warmth in God to direct you toward what you ought to do with your hands. And there is enough in God 
to love and delight in and rejoice in and treasure, that He can keep your deepest longings satisfied for eternity. But the one thing that has to grasp us to make us whole in this way, we have to be transformed by His kindness. It's the refrain that keeps coming up over and over and over again in this psalm. Verse 5, For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love, loving kindness, chesed, to all who call upon you. That's why I know you'll listen to my plea for grace in the day of trouble, because you're like that. Verse 15 brings us back to the same place. But you, O Lord... I'm surrounded by ruthless men who want to take my life. But you, O oh Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, loving kindness and faithfulness. The God we're asking to unite our heart so that we may fear his name is a God in whose presence we don't have to be afraid. Because of all the things that are true of Him, the one thing that He keeps featuring to draw us back to Himself over and over and over again is His loving kindness. This psalm is just quoting what Israel had known from the days of Moses. While Moses is hearing from God the commandments that should govern the lives of God's people, the people are impatient at the bottom of the mountain. And they go to Moses' brother Aaron, and they say, Aaron, make us a God. Make us a God to worship. And they all bring their jewelry, and they melt it down, and Moses comes down the mountain, and Aaron says, I don't know what happened. It's like golden calf popped out of the fire. And in the follow-up to that, Moses says, Lord, can you still show your favor to your people even though our hearts are so fragmented? And God says, I'll show you my glory. And in the moment of beholding the glory, this is what the Lord says to Moses. The Lord, the Lord, a God... It's verse 15 of our psalm. Merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He goes on to say, you know what? I keep steadfast love for thousands, probably meaning thousands of generations. But I'm also a God who keeps track of sin. I forgive iniquity. I forgive transgression and sin, and I will by no means clear the guilty. He's a God of justice as well as a God of kindness. And yet, the psalmist doesn't pray, Lord, I know you'll hear me on the day of trouble because you're a God of justice. He prays, I know you'll hear me because you're full of chesed, you're full of loving kindness, you're full of goodness. 
He's the God who has made a way to show kindness and forgiveness toward people who fragment our own hearts because we're not satisfied with him. And at the same time, he shows that kindness. He's made a way to satisfy his own justice so that he can be both the God who never compromises by clearing the guilty and who always keeps his promise to show loving kindness. How does he do that? It has less to do with the integrity of our hearts and more to do with the integrity of his heart. The prayer of this psalm is echoed in Jeremiah chapter 32 where God speaks to a nation that has repeatedly run after other gods, repeatedly done the things that they know they shouldn't delight in, just as you and I do every day. And God says, these people whose hearts have been fragmented this way shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one path that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. God has made a way to love us with all of his heart. And in doing so, to open the channel of kindness and forgive our guilt before him. The psalmist didn't know what name to give to that process. Gravity was true even before ancient people knew to call it gravity. Jeremiah called it an everlasting covenant. He didn't know how to be more specific about it. Einstein's taught us a better vocabulary of gravity, warping of the space-time fabric, etc. Jesus has come along and told us the answer. How can we live with a whole heart? God made a way to give his whole heart to us. What Jesus has done for a dying world and for people like you and me with fragmented hearts has opened the way to God's loving kindness to be ours forever and has closed the path of wrath and anger because Jesus has taken the guilt of our fragmented hearts on himself. It's possible to have a whole heart because God, through His Son, has given us His whole heart.
Can we take a moment and give thanks for that before we celebrate the Lord's Supper together? Father, the Scriptures tell us that your Son gave thanks before he broke bread, and he gave thanks before he poured out wine. And now we give thanks to you. We give thanks to you because you made a way. You made a way to show us the one thing that can transform us so that we can be whole people. You made a way to show us kindness. Not a weak form of kindness, but a kindness so strong that it could deal with justice without compromise. And yet, keep all your promises of mercy. We thank you for those gifts. Amen.